Welcome to On the Edge of Equity, where every episode we feature crucial conversations centered on equity, diversity, and inclusion. But this isn't just talking the talk. It's about inspiring action, asking tough questions, and getting honest answers. Welcome to On the Edge of Equity. It's a podcast that we have started at Athena Communications. I am Tammy Belton Davis, the founder and president of Athena Communications and your host. We started these conversations for several months in the past, multiple conversations about the importance of not just doing transactional work, but really facilitating transformational change. And so my hope for this podcast is that we can engage with leaders around the city, both locally and nationally, and talk about equity, talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion not being a one-time project or sort of this box that we check off in a strategic plan, but that it truly is foundational to everything an organization and community should be. And I'm not going to be quiet about that. And so I'm excited to have someone who I have certainly followed, someone who has been a model in terms of their leadership and commitment in the city of Milwaukee, which is where we're headquartered, and excited to have these conversations really about equity. And so I want to warmly welcome Paula Pennebaker to our conversation and On the Edge of Equity, our podcast. Uh, Paula, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Tammy. It's so good to be with you. I am so glad that you are here. We've been having conversations over the last, you know, a couple months or so about you and about the work that you've done. You know that I certainly appreciate you and have been in relationship with you and connected to you around the work that you've done in the past as the president of the YWCA of Southeastern Wisconsin, all of the things that you have done in this community. So excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, let's get started. So I mentioned that you led YWCA Southeast Wisconsin for a number of years. We've been talking about this air quote of retirement and what that means. You're currently serving as an executive advisor. You're not the type to slow down. We have articulated that in many <laughs> conversations. You have not slowed down. So tell us what your focus is. What's, what's happening in your world? Well, you're right. I uh, was retired for all of two months when I got the opportunity to work as the chief operating officer for the Milwaukee Host Committee for mm-hmm. the Democratic National Convention that wasn't in Milwaukee. I was very disappointed about that, but I still learned a lot. It was a lot of fun and that's always exciting for me, doing something that I haven't done before and mm-hmm. uh, always get something out of opportunities like that. When I finished that, I got to actually do more work with YWCA as a co-facilitator of racial justice training. Look at that gift that keeps giving. <laughs> the gift that keeps giving. With Dr. Martha Berry, So all through COVID, the end, we started at the end of 20 Mm -hmm. and off and on all through 21, I co-facilitated sessions online with her. Mm -hmm. And um, that was exciting to keep doing that work. During that same period, I started facilitating book discussions Mm -hmm. on race. So that was big fun. So, yeah. And then 
in the fall of 21, I had an opportunity to start writing. Mm -hmm. And that came about as a result of having written blog posts for the YWCA, for the website. So I had an opportunity to um, start doing that. I certainly always say I thought I was a fairly decent writer, but I never considered myself a writer, having been born to an English teacher. It's in your blood. It's in my blood. So I got a chance to do that. And that, too, is linked to race Mm. and um, the promotion of the COVID vaccine in uh, black communities. So... You've, you've talked about and lifted this. So much of your work has been centered around eliminating racism. It's also been centered on how to improve the lives of women and girls. How, how is that being manifested in your leadership? And as you start to talk about the writing that you're doing, some of the consulting work that you're engaged in, talk a little bit about what that journey has been that commitment, that personal and professional commitment around racism, eliminating racism? That's a good question. I think when I came out of college, I stumbled into my first opportunity, which was a nightmare. But then I got a job working at the Procter & Gamble Company. And this was a long time ago before the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion movement, as I like to call it, started. I started doing that work as an in-house consultant. It was an ad hoc role. I still had a full-time gig, but I was able to do that work as a just a perk, I guess, of the job at a, a time in the management systems division, which I have changed careers several times in my organized work life. But um, at that time, it was looking at trying to increase participation of black professionals, working with managers in pairs to look at how to improve the work environment for women, uh, both women and people of color to make it easier for them to integrate into this predominantly male profession. And that's where I really got hooked on looking at that time was focused primarily on race. Mm -hmm. And then we evolved into looking at opportunities for women in the non-traditional world of technology. And that work there gave me the opportunity to do diversity work when I relocated to Milwaukee. And, um, you know, really had complete responsibility for that. Uh, when I started working for First Wisconsin, then First Star Bank. And um, it was still, in Milwaukee, that work was still rather new. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any of us knew how to make it work effectively. And I certainly didn't as a newcomer to Milwaukee. And I found it to be a real challenge here. But I learned more about the work at that time. I'm always trying to grow and learn. I'm a big reader, so I always do what I can to expand my own personal knowledge base. But um, that's where I really learned about the challenges in that, in you know, in that diversity and race, sexism arena, mm-hmm. and how receptive or not organizations are to dig deep into that. 
talk about those challenges. What were you finding within the institutions that were impediments or barriers to doing the work? Well, one of the things I'm challenged by with diversity work Mm -hmm. is the notion that everything is of equal importance has this every element of diversity has the same impact. Okay. And it's hard to get people to understand that while all of our persons in our individual personhood, all of the ways we manifest in the world are important to us, there are some things that impact those of us who are often targeted differently than other people. For me, and you and I have talked about this, you know, being a black woman is two distinctly different elements that impact our lives differently. Mm-hmm. We can't necessarily separate being woman from being black. Right. And that's hard. And, and working in a space in my early career here in Milwaukee, it was difficult for me to talk about race because it was so uncomfortable for white people that I was working with. I got criticized for trying to push race too much. And fortunately, I worked with a woman who I'm now a personal, very close personal friend with. I said, I don't have the capacity not to be able to do that. Believe firmly if we could tackle racism, that we could do anything. As people, a group of humans, we could do anything if we could have conversations about race. If we could start the conversation. If we could, you know, if we could just start it and not have people get, you know, mostly white people get so defensive Mm -hmm. and that not being able to do that holds us back. Absolutely. And do you find that it is rooted that why we're not able to start the conversation, have conversations like these, has everything to do with fragility, has everything to do with people's own inability to be uncomfortable or to feel unsafe. Is that what you are finding as sort of the the catalyst for why or the lack of ability for us to engage in conversations? Well, that's a good question, Tammy. You know, years ago, I had somebody I considered a mentor who, in a seminar I attended with him, and this this statement has always stuck with me, and that is, in his case, it was just about blacks and whites. He said that black people have to be willing to let go of our anger, and white people need to let go of fear for us to have authentic discussions. Interesting. And if I bring that in today's context, the way I see that is on white side of equation, there's so much defensiveness. And I liked what you said about the, you know, this, this fragility thing that Robin DiAngelo Mm -hmm. put the name to, uh, this notion that if you talk to me about race, you're saying I'm racist. And this lack of willingness Mm -hmm. to even have a conversation without falling apart or without being accusatory. You know, what I always say children do is you me and me to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, just calm down and let's talk. Let's talk. 
Let's start there. Let's let's talk. Yes. And as a black woman, my my willingness and open to talk about race doesn't come from a place of attacking. I want to have authentic relationships with anybody. Mm-hmm. And I want to be in a place of not having to censor myself. Um, I don't think I'm rude. I don't view myself as being particularly scary unless you don't like to deal with people who just say what, you know, what comes to mind as politely as possible. But I recognize that's a problem for some people. But the good thing about growing older is that life is shorter. Indeed. (laughs) Life is shorter. And I'm just not at this point in my life going to carry the stress of somebody else's feelings. Mm -hmm. Well, and there is, I think, when you talk about both anger and fear, there is a righteous indignation um, that all of us should have for injustice or inequities that exist. And so bringing that fire, that passion, I think is healthy. Um, And I think it also is a piece of I am the fear part can be a driver and motivator as well, that there is real fear that people of color, that black people, that folks who've been oppressed and marginalized experience that has to be a part of the conversation as well. And so when we think about and when you think about the work that you are doing now to speak truth to power, the work that you are doing to engage people around these really critical conversations, and I'm careful to call them critical conversations and not just rooted in uncomfortable conversation because it's supposed to be uncomfortable. So acknowledging that it is uncomfortable to me is a given. They're critical and necessary (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. And so speak a little bit to sort of this journey that you've been on that is unapologetic, that is bold in in many ways around having the critical, important issues and conversations around race that you are having. What is What are you seeing that is unfolding in the conversations that people are inviting themselves to or choosing to engage in? Well, I think the difference be- between what I'm doing now and what I was doing at the YMBCA, obviously, as the leader of an organization, with such a bold mission, eliminating racism and empowering women, there's a a thin line to walk when you have responsibility to the enterprise that you just can't be buck wild when you're dependent on people's contributions to keep you going. Sure. There was a sense of moderation I always had to be mindful of. Now I don't. Mm. I can choose to or not to engage with people. I can... You know, I can look at somebody and quickly calculate, is this worth my potential aggravation to try to have a conversation with this person or just say not today and turn and walk away. But what I've the thing I really enjoyed in in facilitating book discussions is, first of all, you're trying to spark conversation about somebody else's work and getting people to think about how they feel about the author's perspective. Mm -hmm. 
I am a big fan of Isabel Wilkerson's, for an example. I facilitate discussions about the book Cast. Mm-hmm. It's a very good book. Great read. She's a just a wonderful writer, and her perspective is very incisive, but respectful, mm-hmm. and just these are the facts. And watching people engage in that discussion and really, you know, observe their ahas. Mm-hmm. Ah, I never thought about that. Or, ooh, I didn't know that. And then have to grapple with the embarrassment of not knowing things they feel they should have known. Sure, sure. So those are the discussions I really enjoy at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm not about trying to convince people of anything anymore. I'm just not. Mm-mm. <laughs> it's like to me, this is what we see. Yes. And it's up to you to interpret that however you want. Well, and I'm, I want to ask about that, looking at whether it is, you know, an art form, a book. Are you finding that those are the conversations that people can bring themselves to because there is something that they are responding to versus I'm now asking you to engage just from your own personal experience or I'm asking your opinion or I'm asking you absent of responding to this thing. The response might be a little bit different because the pressure is on me to sort of give just me absent of this thing that we are responding to. I think having people read somebody's work, a stranger's work, and then having to think about how they feel, not about this live person that's sitting across from them, but about what the stranger Mm -hmm. has written that resonates with them. And having a trusted person that they can ask questions about or make observations, you know, things like, oh, my God, when I read that, I thought, how many times have I done that? And, you know, she made it so clear. And and then having them grapple with their struggles sure. based on somebody else's words, mm-hmm. I believe, is much less intimidating and is much easier, it seems, for people to engage in genuine conversation. Did I answer? Oh, absolutely. I think, and part of why I'm asking is that when we think about the conversations, there is a bit of pressure that one may feel that if I'm asking you or engaging you, then I've got to offer my opinion or I've got to share that level of vulnerability um, seems to be heightened when there is not something that we are responding to and that it's also facilitated in a way that allows sort of that freedom of expression, but also can trigger some opportunities for engagement. So I think that's a clear plane <laughs> that we're talking about. Yeah, I I really like that platform, mm-hmm. that ability to, you know, read something, get geeked about it myself, and ask probative, open questions. So Tammy writes X, Y, and Z. What was your perspective? How did you react? What was the first thing you thought about when you read her comment on A, B, and C? Mm -hmm. So 
that's putting all the onus on Tammy and for the reader to respond to Tammy's words. Sure, sure. Not mine. Not my own. And that makes what I, it's been my experience that that makes the participant ask about this is what I thought and I'm not sure I'm, did I interpret that correctly? Mm-hmm. And having to draw out their reaction to things, I think is a, a good way for people to learn about these issues. And then they can always use that as a launch pad to questions once the book discussion is finished. Sure. The whole, Paula, I remember when we read Tammy's book and she said X, Y, and Z, and I saw this on the news and it made me think about it. You've you got know. these connections that are happening. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I love that as a platform. You've talked about a little bit in this conversation, but certainly conversations that we've been having about your lived experience that as you are getting better, because we're not going to say older, because this is <laughs> my daughter says, why, why I'm getting wise as you are getting wiser, <laughs> as you are getting better. There are some ways that you show up in the world very differently now in this season of your life. Also, independent of the leadership role that you have with your organization. What about this part of your life that you are most excited about? And then I want you to connect it to sort of still inherently the work around eliminating racism and social justice. But what about Paula Pennebaker in this season of your life that is different, exciting, is connected to your passions? Talk about that. Well, I definitely feel fewer constraints. Mm. I think the thing that really is exciting for me right now is I have a daughter that's almost exactly half my age now. And she's experiencing things now that hurt me, really, because I hate that she's seeing things that when she was younger, like she asked me one time, I was talking to her about something, and she was like, Mom, do you? always think of race. That's all you talk about. Yes, and I, I do. I'm like, yep, <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> Not all the time, but I do find myself draw, you know, often drawing correlations between what I see and what I know about history of race. But she's older now. Mm-hmm. So that was teenage daughter. Now she's older. And Every parent, and I'm sure you've seen it with your son, every parent, it's just just such a joy when your child grows up and says, Mom, you were right. Absolutely. I'm waiting for that day, (laughs) Paula. Let me just tell you. Well, he's not quite old enough, but there will be a time when he'll either say. I'm holding all to that. (laughs) He'll either tell you or his dad or the two of you together that you were right about something that at this time. He's he's trying to find himself. He's not at a point where he even sees that or yeah. understands it. But at some point, there will be a moment when something will pop mm-hmm. and he'll think, oh, Lord. They, my mama was right. <laughs> my mama was right. My dad told me this. That happened to me. Mm. My daughter told me when she said, you know how I used to give you a hard time about always talking about race? Mom, sometimes it is. Mm, Now she gets it. Now she gets it. So now when she calls me to have a 
you know, a mini breakdown, not necessarily in tears, but just say, Mom, you won't believe what happened. Mom, you won't believe what this person said to me. Mom, why are people so dumb? (laughs) You know, it's just, it fills my heart so that she is she has grown in such a way that she understands yes. things, but is not completely tainted by them. Absolutely. And that's a testament of your passion and your commitment to this work, being a part of your journey that now you're seeing the fruit of your labor and you've been blessed to hear <laughs> from your daughter that she has received it. It is a testament, I think, of that life's commitment. Talk a little bit, and even in the context of your daughter now calling you as she's navigating this world and seeing race or experiencing racism or any of the other isms show up or manifest in ways that she needs your counsel. Can you talk a little bit about what this journey around social justice has meant to you and how that is influencing or has influenced your leadership, your experience as a human, being a part of the Milwaukee community? What what does that look like? Well, I see things that have changed since I've been in Milwaukee. I'll tell you, and I I think we've talked about this before. When I first moved here, I thought I had moved to another planet. I have seen things change over the 30 years I've been here, Mm -hmm. but I still see a lot of work that needs to be done. And the thing that hurts me is what I haven't seen. And I haven't seen the needle move enough in the area of addressing poverty and the disparities that manifests themselves in communities of color on both the the near north and the near south side. There's still too much poverty. There's inadequate housing. There's, you know, joblessness. There's just too much of all things bad. Mm. And I haven't seen us come up with enough creative solutions to address those problems. And what I have seen over the years that has really concerned me is the contempt that lawmakers hold against Milwaukee, which even with all of our challenges, is still the economic driver for the state. All facts. You know, so I'm like, y'all are being really dumb. (laughs) You know, I won't name cities, but people don't come to this small town in northern Wisconsin because there's so much there. I would venture to guess everyone on their way to this small town stops in Milwaukee Mm -hmm. just to stand in awe of the lake and the lakefront. This is the heart of the state of Wisconsin. So we need to do better. Mm -hmm. The collective we. We need to work harder. We need to do better. And we not throw up our hands so fast at well, we've done all of this for those people and it's just not getting better. Right, right. How do we move in what you are talking about, this collective action, number one, and so much at the heart of how Athena moves and what is also my personal passion is how do we facilitate transformational change, which is long and sustainable and it's hard. How do we move from the transactional place that you said, like these issues are an intersectionality. They reflect the social determinants of health and all of the the ways that 
we address one part of the problem have to be within the complexity of all of these issues. So are there some examples anywhere, whether it's locally or nationally, where you've seen models of, you know, really addressing the complex issues from a comprehensive transformational way that's not just rooted in just sort of, we're going to tackle this one piece? You know, that's a real good question. And I wish I had spent time thinking about that ahead of time. I've seen, and I can't think of it right now, probably as a factor of my wise (laughs) status, my wise (laughs) status. But there are places I've seen where people are taking some pretty creative approaches to address things in communities, in, in small places. And lift a model that worked in this place to the next place. And uh, many of them have to do with housing. Mm-hmm. You know, I read Matthew Desmond's book a couple of times. And the reaction that some people had to that book was, well, it made Milwaukee look bad. The man, when he published the book, said that this is not just a Milwaukee problem and listed other cities that were comparable. And you're talking about eviction. Eviction. Yes. Now, he chose Milwaukee because that's what he was closest to. He was working on his doctorate at the University of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Made sense to me. But lots of people read that book. And rather than use it as a catalyst for change, they got caught up in the fact that, well, it's making Milwaukee look bad. Well, Milwaukee does look bad. Right. When it comes to housing. These are real challenges. Yes. It's a real challenge. So I think we get caught up sometimes in the you being mean to me mindset mm. about pointing out problems. So I can't think right offhand of a city that I think has done a better job. But just recently, I don't know if I saw it on 60 Minutes or where, but I'll look it up and send the information to you. There have been cities that have done a really good job at looking at problems holistically. Yes. And also from the perspective of, you know, there's a book called The Sum of Us written by Heather McGee Mm -hmm. uh, that talks about how racism hurts everybody. Mm -hmm. How if we make decisions thinking about, well, it's going to advantage this group and disadvantage another group as opposed to how can it bring both groups together and produce a better good for all. And I think that's what what you just lifted, I think, is at the heart, even if we can't demonstrate or point to a model, at the heart of what you're saying is that whether we are dealing with individuals or communities, it has to be a multifaceted approach. So we talked about what is the, you know, experience of black women feel and look like. It's multifaceted. It's not exactly. one dimensional, right? And we can't, and, and groups within groups, if I use sisters as an example, those of us who have experienced some modicum of success cannot isolate ourselves from sisters that struggle. Mm-hmm. And the same is true. And that's something that I think we've picked up over decades about how to make it, you know, well, we've made it and we've picked up that 
Anglo perspective of, well, we're individuals. We made it on our own. We can, you know, and that we pulled ourselves we, up by our own bootstrap. Yes. You know, we've <laughs> bought into that narrative. So yes. everybody that looks like us that hasn't, well, it's, they're defective. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with them. And, you know, I truly believe there before the grace of God go I. You know, if I hadn't had the family I had, uh, the encouragement I had, the high expectations Mm -hmm. that my parents had of me, I might be one of those people. Absolutely. So I don't, I don't, we don't give enough thought to that. Well, I think as you are having, you know, as you are reflecting on sort of the complications, the challenges. I wonder if you might offer, like, as we are navigating this world and having conversations about equity and really demonstrating a commitment to social justice and justice in all its forms, what counsel might you give to those that want to get engaged in this work, to want to be accountable to the change that needs to be facilitated. What counsel advice would you share? Well, to me, I think people have to understand the fact that that diversity, equity, and inclusion are three distinct, separate things, and that they need to understand what those things mean. I've thought about that a lot lately, and the way I boil it down is that diversity is numbers and representation. Hmm. Equity is making sure everybody in the workplace has what they need to do their jobs and do it well. And inclusion means bringing those diverse voices to the table, making sure their opinions and perspectives are lifted, and that what they say is seen in solutions. Mm -hmm. Not that they, you know, come and have a seat at the table, as everybody likes to say, but what they articulate, they can see manifested, manifested in the organization's change, in their, their work products or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't think people really understand the differences between those things. And I think if an organization has if they have a good reputation as an organization, as a company, and that people see others who look like them in positions of authority at whatever level that might be, if they see some reputation, then that helps that company draw diverse employees. Mm -hmm. Keeping them is another challenge. Indeed. So if they don't see themselves as being included Mm -hmm. in decision-making, including as a part of teams that aren't just about diversity. You know, you include a black woman in a discussion because you have to have a black woman, Mm -hmm. so you check that box. But that's what builds a successful organization. That's what makes for successful DE&I initiative. But that initiative, I think there's a, a graphic that we use at the YDBCA and the Unlearning Racism Training that moves from equality to liberation. Mm-hmm. When you get to liberation, you don't have a DNI initiative anymore. Absolutely. And I think that is the heart of 
why these conversations on the edge of equity are important is because oftentimes people stay right there, Paula, with the initiative. Well, we've started this. We've had this conversation. We've brought in these speakers. We've called it out. We've named it. We did it. So we're good. And the journey of equity is we'll never be finished doing the work. And liberation is a heightened. (laughs) Something we always strive for. That's right. That's right. And so when you talk about, you raised a piece around the inclusion piece within the organization on retention. So it's one thing to say we want to attract members of marginalized communities into our ranks as an organization, be a part of our staff. Maybe there's even some specific leadership goals. The retention piece is the culture piece. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking, having conversations about what it means for young professionals, particularly professionals of color, black professionals. What is that retention process? What is that retention goal? What counsel, what advice would you offer to, you know, the young professionals that are coming through and want to be connected to organizations, maybe are finding that there are challenges within those organizations? Because oftentimes it is if they've not dedicated, you know, part of their mission and work uh, to really seeing equity realized in their organizations. What what advice and counsel might you give to those young professionals? Well, I've come to understand in the last few years that my advice is dated, hmm. that I don't understand. You know, my experience in my at my age, I have only had four full time jobs in my life. And the shortest time I spent at any of them was three years. So I went from three years to 13 years to seven years to over 20 years. So I can't wrap my mind around just coming to a a job and leaving, you know, just because I get angry and I don't see change tomorrow, I'm going to leave. I recognize that that's a generational thing. What I talked to my daughter about, who's a, she's on the, approaching the height of the millennial stage right now, is that no place of business is going to be easy. People are always going to try you. You're going to always feel like you want to just, you you know, shout an expletive and walk out. That will happen. You need to know that, and you need to make a decision at that point in time. Does that one bad experience make you want to walk away from the other things about the job that you value? I think that's the question. And if, if you feel like you have grown, you've gotten everything you can out of this experience, then move on to something else. What I see and the way I interpret what I see today with too many young people is that in some cases they don't know exactly what they're looking for. And when something doesn't go their way, they just leave and quit with the mistaken notion that it's going to be different or better someplace else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't want to say... You think you're not going to have this experience if you go someplace else. Right. But a lot of that has to do with not having understood or been prepared for the fact that things aren't fair. Mm -hmm. And how we prepare young people to deal with what's not fair. Sure. 
Well, and I think there also is in that preparation, how do we start to assess our values Mm -hmm. and our needs within our organizations? And as I share with you, the opportunity around how do you advocate for what you need Mm -hmm. within an organization? Because the grass may not be greener. It may not be what you thought it was the move, but there is learning and growth even in time, in places where we feel like um, it's not necessarily a place for me, there is the opportunity to advocate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is the opportunity to really ask for what you need. And I think just what you've been talking about, that preparation for those that are moving in their career and they're looking at, um, you know, what are the things that are going to make me motivated Um, and encouraged to stay. I think that's one piece of it is what is the ownership on the individual to um, impact their organization. Then there is the piece that I love, which is at the heart of the work that I'm doing and that you're doing. What is the organization's role Mm -hmm. and responsibility um, in creating those safe spaces that people can engage and frankly providing that space that young leaders, older leaders, wiser, and those in between um, can feel like they can thrive in those environments and not just survive. I think you're right. And I think I have to be mindful of my path from where I was a little tyke to where I am now. I grew up in a segregated environment. And this, this, these are hindsight revelations. What I learned about being black, what I learned about the world, well, you know, all of those things help make me the person I am today. Mm-hmm. I think what I have seen happen with uh, a lot of young parents today is this need to deny, and this this is something I see among black people in particular, the desire to deny that a lot of these problems from old time days are still problems today and that ignoring them or acting like it's not that bad anymore or whatever, I think doesn't necessarily prepare young black people for what's still real in the workplace. Absolutely. So if, if you're not prepared and don't see and don't understand, not necessarily that it will happen to you, but if you don't understand it and can't recognize it when you see it, Mm -hmm. you can't outrun that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because every time somebody or something or some circumstance or something in the organization hurts your feelings, your feelings are going to get hurt again if you don't understand where that comes from. Absolutely. So I think, too, HR professionals have to be smarter now. We need to look at bringing younger people into the field. And managers, the way I see this is employers know that people who are coming into the workplace now are different Mm -hmm. across racial and ethnic lines. Mm -hmm. They're different. They have different expectations, want different things. So the part of the organization that's responsible for people needs to be smarter Mm -hmm. and they need to be more assertive in helping leadership, which is still much older than they are, 
understand we have to do things differently. Absolutely. Because the times have changed. Exactly. And you have to be able to now manage not only the external environmental challenges, but you've got leaders who are coming with a different as they are, they may be young in life, but their view of the world is very different. And so the talent is even different that the organizations have to respond to. Absolutely. And, and working, if you have a millennial working next to somebody that's close to retirement, you've got one person who feels like, well, I don't go home until the boss leaves. And another person is like, okay, it's five o'clock, mm-hmm. time to go home. Mm-hmm. Then you have that tension about, oh, well, they don't care. You know, they get up and run out of here. And, well, that's really healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you could mm-hmm. learn something about that. But they don't have mentors or mediators in that role that human resources brings to an organization, or at least should, to say these are things, these are challenges mm-hmm. that we need to learn how to address, how to speak to. Yeah, people... And that's something I really admire about younger people in terms of their understanding that these are things I am not going to do. I see what happened to my parents. The clarity around how they want to show up. Exactly. And live. There's, There's no question. I, you know, you're talking about... All of these issues, um, and as we're having the conversation around transformation and moving from the transactional, thinking about how we address multifaceted issues, I want to leave you on these last two questions. And this one is, what gives you hope? Time. Mm. There's always time. As often as I feel like, oh, my God, things are terrible and the world's going to end, it's not. Mm anytime soon. So there's time. There's time. So I'm hopeful about that. And time is what gives you hope. And it, because things are not what they were when I, I mean, I remember yesterday when Martin Luther King was killed. Mm. I remember even before then when JFK was killed. I remember that just like it was yesterday. I remember when Bobby Kennedy was killed. You know, I remember how things were at those points in time. Mm -hmm. So while we're going through a real rough patch right through here, Mm -hmm. we'll get back to a place where time will be on our side and, and we can get some things done. But what I would like to see is people be more deliberate about how we move toward a better day, Mm -hmm. that we can't be limping along. And that's one thing I think about young people that can be good for us is that they're just going to push us. Yeah. Because they value the time. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. They see what work has done to us, what the way we go about things we have, us boomers, the thing we have created is not good. They are not going to sustain it. So in time, they will move the world, the workplace to a different level, to a better place. I'm glad I'm not in it anymore. (laughs) Well, you kind of still are. (laughs) Because remember, we said air quotes of retirement. (laughs) But yeah, my thing now is just 
as far as younger people are concerned, is about helping them understand context, Mm -hmm. you know, what was and what is, what's similar, what's not, and then letting them know the value of time. Last question for you, Miss Paula Penna Baker. <laughs> you are an avid reader and you are a lover of all things music. And we <laughs> talked a little earlier about your love of the Stones, your love of Chris Stapleton, a recent concert to see the Smokey Robinson. Tell the people what's on your reader list <laughs> and what is on your playlist. Well, uh, on my reader list, I have way too many books. I just made the decision that I need to get a Kindle because old-timey paper books take up too much space. I still love holding a book. I know. Even though I've learned to love audiobooks. I but know. I-, <laughs> I love audiobooks. But I think, um, well, I'm into podcasts right now. I'm listening to one about missing black girls, which is heartbreaking. Books. I'm in a nonfiction role right now. I read Cast, The Sum of Us, a book of short stories written by Korean American that was really fascinating. I'm really interested in the AAPI community right now and the fact that they are coming together in a strong coalition and bringing to mind some of the struggles and uh, inequities they face as the silent Mm -hmm. minority. Uh, as far as music is concerned, I like all kinds of music. I, um, like I told you, I like Chris Stapleton. I like the, and the Stones, one of the top three concerts of my life playlist. I like everything Motown. I like some of the big 80s hip hop kind of stuff. You know, I told you I liked uh, New Edition. I liked Brandy when she was big. I like... You know, I like jazz. I love Quincy Jones and the the work he's created. I just, I like all kinds of music. I like whatever makes me feel good. Yes. Whatever makes me move, mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. Whatever helps me chill, I like it. And I don't care who the person is. I don't care. I get a lot of strange looks when I say, uh, well, when I told people I was going to see the Stones. Yeah, I like like all kinds of music. Music fuels our souls. Ex- absolutely. Yes. And Miss Paula Penna Baker, <laughs> you have fueled my soul. <laughs> I so appreciate you. You know that I honestly uh, and very transparently adore you. Thank you for your work across all of the things that you have done locally, but even for this next season that you are in as an author, speaker, global presence. I'm speaking all of those things. (laughs) We've had those conversations, but again, I just want to appreciate you. Thank you for your time and energy expertise around these conversations, for being one of my very early on guest. Um, you were on my list of people that I wanted to have this conversation. So once again, thank you so much. Tammy, it's been my pleasure. This has been wonderful. I want to, again, appreciate Paula Pennebaker for joining us on the Edge of Equity podcast. We hope that you will uh, tune in again for our next edition. Until next time. Thank you for joining us on the Edge of Equity. Please join our email list at info at athenacommunicationsllc.com so you don't miss a single episode. 
The link is also in the show notes. You can also support the show by sharing it on social media with your personal and professional networks, suggesting guests and topics for us to spotlight, and engaging in crucial conversations about systems change.